Good morning, everyone. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary. I'm happy to be in Erie this morning. We all bring different things to church every week. Some of us are joyful and celebrating great news that's happened. Some of us are sorrowful. And our prayer for our services is that as we gather and we bring those things before the Lord, we can celebrate in joy, if that's where our heart is at, or that we can bring sorrows before him and find help. That's why we're in this series now called Beyond Blue. We want to normalize the reality of despair and discouragement that exists in our lives of adversity and anxiety that many of us face. That sorrow and sadness is not out of the ordinary. It's a common experience in life. Even and maybe especially in the lives of people who have great faith. But our goal for this series is that while we want to normalize these experiences, we also want to do our best to equip each other to confront them. There are a number of ways to confront issues like depression. Sometimes it's the competent care of a medical doctor or a series of visits with a licensed counselor. We have resources like those that we can share with you if you need help. But the focus of our series as we look to move beyond blue is and will be through the lens of the Bible. Learning together about how God's word confronts grief and sadness. How God's people have grappled with worry and despair and have overcome it. So if you have yours with me, would you open your Bible to Lamentations. It's in the Old Testament, probably the easiest way to find it is to look for it in the table of contents that God put in the front of your Bible. It's after two big books, Isaiah and Jeremiah, and then Lamentations. Because of where it falls in the Bible right after the book of Jeremiah, and because chronologically it most likely occurs after the events that are described in the book of Jeremiah, many scholars believe that Jeremiah wrote it. It's anonymous, though. We don't know for sure. But Lamentations is a short book, only five chapters. Each one is a poem written as a response to the traumatic events that are described in the final chapter of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 52. Verse 12 gives us a summary of what happened. In the, in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, that was the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, who served the king of Babylon, entered Jerusalem, and he burned the house of the Lord, and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. 
This is about 600 years before the birth of Jesus, 587 BC. The Babylonians invaded and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. Absolutely leveled it. Including the temple, which the text describes as the house of the Lord. If you were with us for our study and our series in the book of Hebrews this fall, you know how important the temple was. It was the center of worship. It was the place where the presence of God dwelt on the earth. It was the place where the sins of the people were atoned for by the priests. And it had been destroyed, ransacked. How is that possible? God's people had been disobeying God's commands for centuries. There were a series of kings and leaders who did what was evil in the eyes of God. And the people had been warned by the prophet Jeremiah and others that if they did not repent and turn their hearts back to the Lord, that this would happen, that God would send judgment through the Babylonians. But the people didn't listen. And through the Babylonians, God punished his people by destroying the city and then sending them into exile. Now, we should be careful when we look at the Old Testament and see experiences like this because we can think that suffering is always the response of God, that he is judging people when we suffer. That's not the case especially for those of us who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. All punishment for sin has been poured out on the Son of God at the cross. He made one final sacrifice for sin. And so every person who calls on the name of Jesus, the punishment of God has been poured out on the Son of God instead of us. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't consequences for our decisions in our life. It doesn't mean that occasionally we suffer because we sinned as a result of that, but it it is not the punishment of God. That has been paid for, finally, by Jesus Christ. But this was the circumstance for the people of God in 587 BC, that God had warned them to repent to turn from their evil ways, or he would execute judgment. And this is what had happened. It was a brutal outcome. Before the city had been invaded and destroyed, it had been surrounded by the Babylonian army under siege for nearly two years. The people who lived inside the walls of the city had experienced the horrors of war, starvation, disease, Death were all common. And then the city itself, all of their homes, the temple, the king's palace were destroyed. It was devastating. This was in the land that God had promised to their forefather Abraham. This was the city that the great King David had founded, the palace he had built. His son Solomon had built this temple. All of it was gone. It had stood for nearly 500 years, and now it's destroyed. 
Can you imagine the emotions of God's people? The trauma, the despair and despondency that they felt. The confusion about where God was in the midst of all of this. That's why it's so helpful for us that Lamentations is in the Bible. Because it includes five poems responding to the destruction of the city, and it doesn't pull any punches if you've read it. There's no platitudes. Lamentations dispenses with all cliches. And there's a lesson for us here. When we're suffering, it's important to recognize what's real, to make an honest evaluation of the situation we find ourselves in. And whether it's Jeremiah or another author, that's what he does. He's real about what the people and what he himself has experienced and is facing. And we should in the midst of our assessment of our situation, try to give words to it, to be able to express what it is that we're going through and what we're feeling, to be able to say, I'm struggling, to raise our hand and say, I, th- I think I might be depressed. I'm sad. I'm heartbroken. Recognizing what's real helps us on the road to healing but it can often be hard to describe exactly the emotions that are inside. Lamentations gives words to the grieving. It is so raw and real in its language, and because of that, I think it's one of the most helpful books in the Bible for those of us who are grieving, who feel pain and sorrow, but don't quite know how to give words to what we're experiencing. Here's just an example from chapter 3 and verse 17. The poet speaks of God this way, actually just in, in verse 16. He, that's God, has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished and so has my hope from the Lord. That's real. The Bible doesn't shy away from pain. It doesn't use platitudes to describe it. It confronts it. The real reality of pain. Even the structure of Lamentations, the way it's composed, communicates something to us about suffering. These five poems all have 22 stanzas. The first four are acrostics or alphabet poems. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and these four poems are all in alphabetical order. If they were in English, it would be as if the author is describing suffering from A to Z in all of its fullness. Its structure seems to try to bring order to what was chaotic. But by the final chapter, the author abandons the ordered alphabetical structure as if to say, I I can't make sense of it anymore. 
Those of us who have walked through sorrow know that that's often the case. Just when we think we've figured it out, when it feels like things are getting better, suddenly it all falls apart again. But there is hope. The middle chapter, chapter three of Lamentations, right in the center of the book is the one spot in these five chapters with a glimmer of hope. The author even structures the third poem uniquely. It's still alphabetical, but each stanza has three lines, all starting with the same letter. It's like A-A-A, B-B-B, C-C-C, shining a light on this central portion of the book. In Hebrew poetry, often the center is the climax, not the conclusion like we might think of, but right there in the middle, in the central portion of this book, as if to say, look right here. Find hope here. It is possible to find hope in the middle of hardship. Verse 19 goes on by saying, I remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall, My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. If you read through the first two and a half chapters to this point, you can resonate with the author's description that I remember my affliction and my wanderings. He has been afflicted. He often describes it as at the hand of God for the judgment that has occurred and that his people and that he personally has experienced. He says the wormwood and the gall, that's a, that's a common phrase that he uses throughout Lamentations. Wormwood was a bitter herb. Gall was some, a, a food that was so terribly tasting it was revolting. You wanted to spit it out. You might resonate with words like that if you've experienced suffering or sorrow, that there is a bitterness in your heart and your soul that you just wish you could get out of you. And he remembers them. He can't stop remembering them. They are his constant reality. But then there is this transition that as you read through Lamentations is out of the blue, And sudden, for him to move from a very depressing, difficult, dark book to suddenly say, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. It's a conscious decision by a sufferer to cling to what is true. He purposely, emphatically calls it to mind in the midst of sorrow. It's an act of the will to remember what is true. Even though he is despondent and discouraged, he knows that in the midst of it, he must call on what he can count on. What is unchanging in the midst of all of this chaos and destruction? And when our own personal world is crumbling, we need to call on what is true. That's where we find hope. 
There are so many other things that we try in the midst of suffering to call on, to rely on, to count on. Sometimes we try to cope with substances. Or maybe sex, or maybe spending money just to feel something different than what we're currently dealing with. Sometimes we just count on a change in circumstances, hoping that things will get better. Sometimes they do. Often they don't. This generation of people who witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem didn't come back triumphantly after a year into the city. They were sent into exile and died there. Sometimes we hope in the change of circumstance by just avoiding the situation. That if we run from it, perhaps the pain will go away. I think we often call on cliches in the midst of suffering. I'm sure many of us have heard them. I know I've probably said them to people. We're trying to be helpful. But, you know, saying things like, God needed them more than you did, isn't always helpful. Or, I know exactly how you feel. Do you really? I'm not sure that you do. Or you should be over this by now. Or don't be sad. We should remember as we help friends who are hurting that our goal in ministering and caring for them is not that they would just stop being sad and start to be happy. Sadness and sorrow is an important part of our process of grieving, of confronting the reality that we face and feeling the feelings that we ought to feel when sad things happen. My family lives in Superior. We were in California when the evacuation call came for our house, which was in the evacuation zone. We watched in horror as homes on our street burned down, streaming on the internet. And we spent Thursday night certain that our house had been lost. Friday morning, we woke up and one of our neighbors had hiked in and sent us a picture of our house still standing, and it was stunning. Two doors down from us is destroyed. We're on the corner of um, Holyoke and El Dorado Drive. There are 25 homes on El Dorado that are leveled. It's horrible. And so many of our friends and neighbors have lost so much. The other day, Lindsay was driving our six-year-old son, Beckett, and they came to a part of Louisville that we drive by regularly that he hadn't seen yet, and it's devastating to see much of this. And he said, Mommy, this makes me really, really sad. That's right. That is the way we should react to circumstances like this. We should be sorrowful. We should lament loss when it occurs in our community, when it occurs in our life. 
And our goal should not be in those circumstances to say, oh, don't be sad. Everything will be okay. But to sit in the reality of sorrow and allow God to minister to us in the midst of it. And as the people of God, to call this to mind and therefore have hope. Hope is not the same as happiness. You can be hopeful and sorrowful at the same time. And I think that's what our author describes. In the midst of all of this sorrow and pain and suffering, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope, he says. And then verse 22 comes out of nowhere. And the first thing he calls to mind is this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. God's love never stops. Even in the midst of despair, even in the midst of destruction, God's love never stops. Steadfast means unmoving, unwavering, steady, stable. We can count on it. It doesn't change. It doesn't ebb and flow. There's no conditions to the love of God. Even when the people of God were experiencing judgment, the author could say, God's love never stops. It's a fundamental part of his character. He has always been and always will be a God of love. For all of eternity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have loved each other. And they created the world and humankind out of the overflow of their love so that it might be shared with others, with you and with me. God's love never stops. And they made a collective plan to redeem a people, to share in their love forever through the death of the Son of God, Jesus. And we can count on that. God's love never stops. But we can wonder, can't we, about the love of God when life is hard. Does he still love us? How could he allow this to happen? The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, For the believer, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can stop the love of God. Nothing. God's love never stops. He goes on to say in verse 22, his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. He also calls this to mind, that God's mercy never ends. God's mercy is a tangible expression of his love for us, that he cares for us, that he has compassion for us, he provides for us. And he does all of that when we don't deserve it. That's mercy. And there is an unlimited supply of God's mercy. We never run out of it. 
God's mercy never ends. Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's the spiritual act of mercy that God has graciously given to us through the gift of his son, Jesus. And there are so many ways that God is merciful to us. It's good to be reminded that God's mercy never ends, even when we're hurting. Because when we are, there is nothing we need more than his mercy. How often do we say, I just don't know if I can make it through today. And the author of Lamentations says, but his mercies are new every morning. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I don't know how many times in my life I've had to remind myself that God's mercy will be new tomorrow. I just can't take it anymore today. But the sun will rise tomorrow and God will provide mercy for me for the day, for whatever it may hold. God's mercy never ends. And then he closes this verse, verse 23, by saying, great is your faithfulness. God's love never stops. God's mercy never ends. He is always faithful, even when it doesn't feel like it. And sometimes we have to speak truth to ourselves to remind ourselves what is true about God. When it doesn't feel like it, we have to fight to remind ourselves that God is faithful. We have to call it to mind. Do you notice the change in language? He speaks about God, and now he speaks to God directly. Great is your faithfulness, he says. We need to be reminded in the middle of hardship that God is personal. He is not distant or disinterested from our present reality, from whatever we may be facing. God is with us in it. He is near to us. He knows what it is to suffer. Jesus is a man of sorrows, familiar with grief. And so we do not serve a God who is unfamiliar with pain. And he is faithful in it with us. We're not alone. We need to call these things to mind in the midst of sorrow. We need to remind each other about God's love, mercy, and faithfulness when we're struggling. God's love never stops. God's mercy never ends. He is always faithful. In a moment, the team is going to come and we're going to sing a song. You're probably familiar with it. A song that was inspired by these words. Great is Thy Faithfulness was written by Thomas Chisholm in 1923 as he reflected back on his life. It's not a hymn like some are that is a response to a spiritual mountaintop experience, but rather it's a simple response to God's faithfulness through a lifetime. For Thomas, his had been a series of difficulties and 
disappointments. He was first a school teacher and then a newspaper editor. He suffered a breakdown after his mother's death and he could not continue working. He found Christ, was ordained as a minister, and then because of health problems, had to retire from ministry after a year. And yet, near the age of 60, he wrote the words to this great hymn. And as he reflected upon it, he said, my income has never been large at any time due to the impaired health in the earlier years, which has followed me on until now. But I must not fail to record here the unfailing faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God and that he has given me many wonderful displays of his providing care, which have filled me with astonishing gratefulness. God's love never stops. God's mercy never ends. He is always faithful. Father, we thank you that you are faithful. Even in the midst of great pain and loss. Pray for my friends who are gathered here today that you might remind them of this truth. That they might cling to what is true about you, God. That you're loving. That you're merciful. That you are faithful. We need your help, Holy Spirit as we live our lives, to call to mind what is true about you. To be the people who can cling to the unchanging character of God. The love of God, the mercy of God, the faithfulness of God. Lord, I pray for anyone who may be suffering today that you would remind them that you are near to the brokenhearted, that you bring comfort and peace in sorrow, that you bring strength and courage in weakness, that you bring healing and hope in the midst of discouragement. Remind us, God, of your greatness, your goodness, and your love for us, we pray. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.